Hey, thank you for being here this morning. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. We are continuing with our sermon series, Growing in Grace. I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. You can find that one. Uh, made this real easy for even those who do not use the Bible app this morning. However, if you do have the Bible app on your phone, you'll have all of the scripture references throughout the message uh, available to you right in front of you on your smartphone. Before I get started, though, let me once again, I know Ryan's already announced it, but please, please, please make every effort to be here this evening at 6 o'clock for the Apostolic Bible College Choir, who is coming to minister to us. I'm excited about this. Uh, the president, uh, Bill Wagner, and his wife will be here as well. And so, uh, you know what? The time has changed for all of you who do not like to drive after dark. They'll be done before it's dark. And so... Come and join us and uh, let's just uh, support them and show them how much we uh, appreciate their ministry. Uh, before I read from Genesis chapter number 6, Timothy Paul Jones, who has written a book entitled Proof, tells in that book a story about his middle daughter who had been previously adopted by another family. And he was sure that this other family had the best of intentions when they adopted her, but they never quite integrated this adopted child into the family of their biological children. So for one reason or another, whenever the family vacationed at Disney World, these parents would take their biological children with them and leave this adopted eight-year-old at home. Now, usually, at least in this child's mind, this happened because evidently she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. Well, after a, a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and Timothy Paul Jones, the author, and his wife ended up welcoming this little eight-year-old girl into their home. But by the time they adopted her... She had seen many pictures and had many dreams about the possibility of someday getting to go to Disney World. And she'd heard about all the rides, the characters, the parades, but when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she'd always been the one left on the outside. Well, once Timothy and his wife found out about this, they made plans as a family to take this adopted child to Disney World, he announced it to the kids, and, but what he didn't expect was the prospect of visiting Disney would produce in this eight-year-old child downright what he called devilish behavior in advance of the trip. In the month leading up to their trip to, to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food, she lied, she whispered insults that were carefully crafted to, to hurt her older sister as deeply as, po as she possibly could. And then as the days on the calendar moved closer and closer to the trip, her mutinies just seemed to multiply. Well, a couple of days before the trip, Tim asked his adopted daughter to come sit in his lap to talk through her latest escapades. And she told him, she says, I know what you're going to do. You're, gonna, you're not going to take me to Disney World. You're going to make me stay home, aren't you? And suddenly, 
all the bad behavior started to make some sense to Tim. She knew she couldn't earn her way into getting to go to Disney World. She tried and failed that test several times before and had been proven right. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from that quote-unquote most magical place on earth. He asked her, he said, is this trip something that we're doing as a family? And she nodded her head yes, and with her eyes open wide and tearful, he asked, well, are you a part of this family? And again, she nodded her head, and he said, then understand this. You are going with us. You're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're a part of the family. You're not being left behind. Well, he goes on to tell the rest of the story, and he says, despite that reassurance that he tried to provide for her, her behavior didn't improve much. It pretty much spiraled out of control even at every hotel and rest stop on the way to Disney World. So they headed to Disney World, and on the day that they had promised that they would be there, it was a typical Disney day. You know what I'm talking about. Overpriced tickets, overpriced food, lots of lines mingled with lots of Disney magic. And in their hotel room that evening, Tim said he saw a very different child emerge. She was exhausted, a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And when bedtime rolled around, Timothy prayed with her, held her hand, and said, so how was your first day at Disney World? And she closed her eyes, and he said she snuggled down with the little... uh, uh, stuffed unicorn that she had gotten at the park that day and after a few moments she opened her eyes ever so slightly and she said daddy i finally got to go to disney world but it wasn't because i was good it was because i'm yours in his book here's how he closes the story and i want to read it and quote it to you He says, that's the message of outrageous grace. Outrageous grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's it's a gift you receive by being God's. Outrageous grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you have nothing but a middle finger flipped in the face of God to offer in return. It's one-way love that calls you into the kingdom, not because you've been good, but because God has chosen you and made you His own. And now He will chase you to the ends of the earth to keep you as his child and nothing in heaven or hell can ever stop him but here's what's amazing he goes on to say about god's outrageous grace this isn't merely what god the father would do it's what he did do god could have chosen to save anyone he says He could have chosen to save everyone or he could have chosen to save no one from Adam's fallen race. But what God did was to choose a multifaceted multitude of someones just like me. And he declared over them and over me, I could have chosen anyone in the whole world as my child. And I chose you. No matter what you say or do, neither my love nor my choice 
is ever going to change. That is grace. And that's what makes it amazing. I wanted to share that story with you to set a context for what we're going to talk about from the book of Genesis chapter number 6. You're there and you're waiting on me, so let's begin. In verse number 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And then the Lord said, I will wipe off the face of the earth. Man, whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. But look at verse number 8. Noah, however, found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that's so amazing. It defies description. And God, I pray that everyone in this room this morning has or soon will experience the abundant grace that you have for every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the population of the earth began to increase after creation, God saw that wickedness abounded. He indicates to us in verse number 5 very emphatically uh, that mankind is evil. It's a description not just of evil, but it's a description of what our hearts look like apart from the grace of God. You move on to verse number 6 and it teaches us something about the personality of God Himself. It says that God looks out and He sees all of this and He's grieved in His heart. Did you know that we serve a God that feels? He has feelings. Our God has voluntarily bound up in His heart His creation, you and I, his people. And God experiences heart-shattering pain when things go wrong in the life of his people. Back in the garden, we said to God, in essence, we don't want you, God. We don't need you. We're going to live life on our own. Well, we didn't, but Adam and Eve basically said that. So why wasn't that the end of the story right there? Why didn't God just wipe them and all the rest of us who were to come completely off the face of the earth right then and there? It's because God decided to stay in the game. God decided to suffer through his pain, through his grief, over what had happened to mankind and love us. Now, this is probably a very appropriate message for today, given all the events that have happened this last week to people in our church family. Uh, unfortunately, or maybe I should say coincidentally, by God's great uh, uh, foreknowledge, this message was prepared long before any of that happened. Cool how God works those things out, isn't it? But I share that with you because when we ask the problem of 
about the problem of suffering, the problem of evil in our world? Why do we ask questions like that? It's because we are thinking only about how it affects us, about our suffering. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered about God's suffering? Have you ever wondered about His suffering? Have you considered that it cost God tremendous suffering in order to be able to relate to every one of us and to love us even while we reject Him, while we betray Him, while we ruin our lives and, and make a mess of the world that He gave us? It has to break His heart. When I wrote that statement here a little over a week ago, I thought, you know, there are many of us parents who have gone through times with our children that we, we can understand that. We see them doing things in their life that is detrimental to their well-being. And our hearts are grieved because we see them going down a path that is ultimately going to have consequences that no parent would ever want their child to have to experience. That's kind of the way it is with God. When He looks at us, He... He sees us doing things and becoming things that are detrimental to the purpose for which He created us. We have two problems that arise here in this account in Genesis chapter number 6. One, what can be done to fix human wickedness? The second, what can be done to fix God's pain, His grieving, over the wickedness of the world that He created? Well, the answer, fortunately, is given to us in verse number 8. Four words that are given there about Noah. Noah found favor. But Noah found favor. The word can, C-H-E-N, is a Hebrew word that is translated in the English as favor or grace. They mean the same thing. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the passage indicates to us that Noah was different, apparently, than the rest of mankind who lived on the earth at that time. And, and this is all we know about this character named Noah at this point, that he had found unmerited favor and grace in the eyes of God. But then we go on to verse number 9. It says, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God... And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What does it say? Excuse me, why does it say that Noah didn't grieve God's heart, but he found favor instead? You saw it. It says, Noah walked with God. He walked with God. What a great way to be known. How many of you would like to be known as a man or a woman who walks with God? Well, great. thankfully to God, you can be known that way. Noah walked with God. He, did, he walked to the beat of a completely different drum of his culture. He didn't go the way of his culture. He, he, he didn't go the way of his neighbors. Noah feared God. He didn't fear man. It's not that Noah got straight A's and everybody else got F's. But rather, Noah learned of God and of God's grace, and he loved and followed and walked with God. Now, it says, too, that Noah had three sons. So did Adam. So did Adam, the first 
man ever made. So Noah is going to be, at the end of this story, a kind of second Adam whom God is going to use to repopulate the earth after God destroys the then-known earth because of its wickedness. Now go with me to verses 11 through 19. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the, in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks, and understand that I am bringing a deluge, a floodwaters on the earth, to destroy all flesh under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. This is the state of the earth in Noah's day. Violence everywhere. Now think about this. In Genesis chapter number 1, we are told that God looked out over the creation and He was very pleased. He said, it is good. And now just five chapters later, now I say five chapters later and that doesn't sound like very much, but the reality is, it's now 1,656 years after creation. And God looks out over the same earth that He created and He sees violence. And He sees what has happened to His creation. So God takes this man whose name is Noah into His confidence and He tells Noah what His plans are. He's going to destroy all flesh with the flood of waters. He's destroying the people who've already been destroying themselves. But he also adds, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah. I'm going to preserve you, preserve you and your family. Why? Because of grace. Noah found grace. He found favor in the eyes of God, an unmerited, undeserving relationship in which the God of the universe says to Noah, I will keep a relationship with you. I will protect you. I will preserve your life and I will be your God. Now, if I'm Noah, I'm thinking, I'm so thankful for a God who doesn't run away. I'm thankful that we don't serve a God of one night stands. I'm thankful that He is a God who stays in relationship with us, who keeps His promises to us, and who loves us with an everlasting love. That's what a covenant relationship is. Unlike a contract, God is going to keep His promise that He's going to love us whether or not we keep our end of the deal and love Him back. Now, isn't that amazing? How many of you found that it's difficult to love someone who can't stand you? 
Well, duh. But God's not that way. His is an unconditional love. He's going to love us no matter what we do. You say, well, pastor, it doesn't quite make sense. God's going to destroy. Well, we'll get to that in just a minute because that's the best part. But God tells Noah something. He tells Noah to build an ark. He's going to tell Noah later on to get into the ark. He's going to tell Noah a little bit later to exit the ark. But this is the first thing that God says to Noah. Build an ark. Now this isn't any ordinary boat. This thing is huge. He gives us the dimensions, but I've broken them down for emphasis a little bit more for you. This boat he's building is a football field and a half long. It's as wide as a semi-truck with two trailers hooked behind it. It's as high as a five-story house with multiple levels in it. The total deck area of the ark, are you ready for this? Is 1,518,750 square feet. 760 times the size of my house. Now I'm not done. The cargo capacity of that ark is that of a modern cargo ship. Now let me just paint you an example. You all know what a sheep looks like, right? I'm guessing a full-grown sheep's maybe five feet, five feet long. Two feet wide, two feet wide. Ten square feet, right? So if you take a sheep-sized animal and put that animal inside that amount of square footage, you can put safely 151,875 sheep-sized animals into the ark. And you folks wonder what I do with all my time in the office. Pretty amazing. There was also, though, going to be eight people on this ark. Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives for a total of eight, and two of every living thing, male and female, will go with them. And here's probably the most amazing thing about this entire story. Noah obeys what God told him to do. Why is that amazing? (laughs) It wasn't raining nor had it ever rained before Noah built this ark. (laughs) So building an ark didn't make sense to Noah's neighbors. It must have taken years and years for Noah to go out to cut the trees down, haul the wood back, make the planks, and fasten them together for a football field and a half long boat. I don't know if you've thought about this in relationship to this story. It must have cost Noah a fortune. And what about gathering those animals? That's a lot of work. And not only that, but he has to get food supplies that will sustain the animals for the entire period of time they're in the ark. It's not like 
Noah had a Sam's Club there so he could go find food in bulk. He had to go find it, he had to bring it back, and he had to prepare it all by himself. And then we come to chapter number 7. Look with me at verse number 1. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark and all your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. The second time that God speaks to Noah. But this time... He's telling him to go into the ark before the rain comes. Now, here's something I told you last week. I'm always finding new stuff in Scripture that I know I've read a hundred times if I've read it once. It didn't occur to me until this week. We never hear Noah say anything in this entire story. How many of you would have had something to say to God if he told you to build an ark? Noah never says a word in this entire story. But boy, his actions sure speak loudly. He did what God commanded him to do. His life evidently is totally God-directed. He lives by faith. He lives... Oh, this would be good counsel for another message, not for today. He lives by the ear not by the mouth. Just food for thought. He lives basing his life not on what he sees, but upon hearing God's voice. So Noah and his family do again what God has told them to do. They enter the ark. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 7, I'm not going to go there and read it. You can find it there for yourself. It's on your smart app. We see that Noah is listed among the first three people of what we now know to be the great Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame. Those who radically followed God without knowing ahead of time what the outcome was going to be. Does that resonate with you this morning? We don't know what our outcome is going to be of this walk of faith. At least in terms of practical things that we can see and hear and, and feel. I mean, spiritually speaking, we know what the outcome is going to be. But I'm telling you that even in this life, you can trust God. You can trust Him. By faith, trust Him with every outcome of your life. And it's here that the story really picks up steam. Look with me at verses 11 through 16 of chapter number 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the sources of the watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives, entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that crawls on the earth according to its kind, all birds, every fowl, and everything with wings according to their kinds. Two of all flesh that has the breath of life in it entered the ark with Noah. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered just as God had commanded him. 
then the Lord shut him in. He shut him in. And the deluge continues for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Here's what happens, friends, in practical terms. God shuts Noah and his family in the earth, in the ark, and outside literally hell breaks loose. It is unlike any natural disaster you've ever heard about. God the Creator undoes his creation. He destroys everyone. He opens the windows of heaven. Rain begins to come down on the earth. For 40 days and 40 nights, it rains. It pounds and it pounds and it pounds against the ark. The waters begin to rise. The earth is flooded. Now let's just depart here for a moment and talk about the number 40. The number 40 is a stock biblical word that has hope at its core. Whenever the number 40 is used in the scriptures, you know that there's ultimately hope at the center of it. 40 days is a time of testing. A time of testing that will eventually lead to the hope of a new beginning when God is going to do a new work among His creation. Let me just give you an example of the instances in Scripture in which we hear the number 40. The nation of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. What were they going to do in the promised land? God was going to give them a new start. Jonah walked into the city of Nineveh where he preached the greatest sermon ever preached and he said that in 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And the city of Nineveh, which was a city of pagans, repented and placed their faith in Almighty God. Forty days led to a great revival. Jesus spent 40 days being tempted in the wilderness by the enemy. And then the Spirit of God descended upon him and he began his public ministry and the world has never been the same since that happened. Noah and his family spent 40 days and 40 nights in the ark as it rained outside. And God purged the earth out from what it had been in order to bring to it the hope of a new beginning. The flood continues for 40 days. The ark floats on the surface of the waters. It rises high above the earth. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God destroyed every living thing that was on the face of the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. I'm telling you this because earlier in this same book of Genesis... We heard that God took man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now the floodwaters come and extinguish that same breath from mankind and people die. But I want you to catch something here. The very same waters that came and crushed the life out of the people on the earth pushed up the ark 
and the people and the animals inside the ark were preserved. Hang in there with me. I said earlier, God's judgment always, always, always contains grace. The flood on the earth lifted the ark and the lives inside it were saved. Now go with me to chapter 8, verse number 1. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is the turning point of this entire story. It says, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. Now when we use that word remember in our English language, we think of someone perhaps remembering something that they forgot. That's not the idea conveyed in the original Hebrew language. The word that's translated as remember in Hebrew means that God is reminded of a commitment to a covenant partner. God remembered that he had a covenant relationship with Noah and he will keep that commitment. Now for those of you who are old time Pentecostals, when I read that, I thought, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Hallelujah. God will keep his covenant. Perhaps some of you here this morning are wondering if God remembers you. Maybe you've been going through something and it seems like it's been 40 days and 40 nights, maybe 40 weeks and 40 months. You don't even see an end in sight. I'm telling you this morning, if you know God, you have a covenant relationship with Him in which He remembers you And you need to know that even in the midst of your struggle. You come to verses 15 through 18 of chapter number 8. It says, God again speaks to Noah. Come out of the ark. You, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing of all flesh that is with you. Birds, livestock, creatures that crawl on the ground. And they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All wildlife, all livestock, every bird, and every creature that crawls on the earth came out of the ark by their groups. Hey, the rain stopped. It's been raining for 40 days, 40 nights. So it takes, as you might well imagine, a very long time for the floodwaters to recede and for the earth to dry up. And finally, the ark comes to rest in the mountains somewhere near the intersection of what is now modern-day Turkey, Russia, and Iran. But here's what you see happening. You don't see Noah just exiting the ark. Noah waits for God's voice and for God's timing. He waits for God to tell him he wa- Let me review. He waited for God to tell him to build the ark, right? He waited for God to tell him and his family and all the animals to enter the ark. And now he waits to hear God's voice to tell him to exit the ark. 
Here God speaks to Noah a third time. And Noah does again what God told him to do. He exits the ark. In a sense, though, Noah exits the ark as the second Adam. The one given the responsibility of starting a new beginning on the earth that had been destroyed. But look at verse number 20. Oh, I like this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What's the first thing that he did when he exits the ark? He worships. Go on to verse number 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. Now, I hope you're still with me. Because I want to propose something to you there that just literally jumped off the page at me this last week. Noah and his family are out of the ark, right? There is, however, still a problem. There's still a problem. Well, let's think back. What went into the ark with Noah? Animals went into the ark with Noah. His family went into the ark with Noah. But sin also went into the ark with Noah. And we learn back in Genesis 6-5 that every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. That's what God saw. Here in chapter 8, verse number 21, God essentially says the same thing. I'm never going to destroy the earth again by flood, even though, catch this, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. So sin went into the ark with Noah. And the Bible takes violence and evil and the problem of suffering in the world so much more seriously than any other worldview. And it gives a name for the grand problem that went into the ark and came out of the ark. Sin. Sin isn't just an issue of behaving badly. Sin isn't getting eliminated by getting the wrong people off of the earth and the right people into the ark of safety. It's a whole lot deeper than that. Did the flood solve the dual problem of human wickedness and God's pain over the wickedness of the earth? No. The flood didn't solve that problem. God was under no illusion whatsoever after the flood when Noah and his family came out to start mankind over again. God had no illusion that mankind had in any way, shape, or form turned over a new leaf. He had no, no clue that these eight people that were rescued and saved inside the ark of safety were going to turn around and be good. He never thought that. He had, he had no plans that they would do better from here on out. And we've confirmed that. 
Noah deserved the flood because of sin. He grew up around a group of people that were full of wickedness, and that's what Noah grew up from too. He was one of them. In fact, you're going to see, we're not going to go into it, but in the very next chapter, you see that sin has an effect on Noah. You see him drunk and naked, royally screwing up what's going on in his life. So I say that to tell you that Noah is no better after the flood, but grace had found Noah and placed him in the ark of safety. What am I saying to you this morning? We all deserve the flood. The amazing thing about this story, however, is not God's judgment. It's not the flood, but rather the amazing thing is God's grace. That he would save Noah, and even more so, that he would save us. Because since Noah lived, the world has grown more and more evil, more and more wicked, more and more violent. And that brings us to today. God's grace is available even to the world that we live in today. And the flood was God's judgment upon the then known earth, but the flood pointed to something greater. There's one very big thing that happened after the flood. It's this offering that Noah made as an act of worship after he exited the ark. And in particular, the aroma that came from that offering. That aroma goes up to God. And interestingly enough, the name Noah means rest. God's grieving heart is now put at rest, not because of the flood, but because of the aroma arising up from Noah's worship. It's the first burnt offering, the first sacrificial offering in all of Scripture. And it's an amazing act of grace on God's part, namely that He allows Himself to be put to rest by a sacrificial burnt offering. By the way, you can't sacrifice an animal without the animal shedding blood. So any kind of sacrificial offering always involves the shedding of blood. The theological term of what I'm just describing to you is the word propitiation. Propitiation is an act where God turns away His wrath and His judgment from those who deserve it, not because we've changed... We're the same after the flood as we were before the flood. But here's what's changed. Something in God has changed. His justice meets His grace in a burnt offering. And God realizes that that is the solution to the problem not only of His grieving heart, but it's also the solution to human wickedness. A sacrificial offering that involves the shedding of blood. Now, obviously, you know where I'm going with this. 
Noah's offering was a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrificial offering. Jesus himself, God's son, offering himself as the once for all time sacrifice, shedding his sinless, perfect lifeblood on our behalf so that we can be forgiven of our imperfection, that is our sin, and be reconciled to God. You see, God knew that no, no animal, no human offering could fix the problem of sin and pain in the world. So what's he do? He sends his son from heaven to solve that problem. Friends, at the center of history is a big block of wood. And as big as the ark is, it's not that one. The big block of wood is the cross. It's the cross where the flood of God's wrath Push Jesus down into death so that we could be lifted up and made safe in an ark of safety. Hallelujah. I don't know how much reading you do. I do a lot. One of my favorite authors is Philip Yancey. He calls that exchange the atrocious math of the gospel. <laughs> one sacrificial offering, one Savior, equals a new start for billions and billions of people. Grace. Do we deserve it? No. Is it amazing? So amazing. If you've trusted in His Son Jesus as the worship team comes, if you've trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior, God is at rest with you. In other words, you're not grieving God's heart anymore because you trust in the sacrifice of His Son. You are living under a canopy of His grace. And I close with this thought. Grace is bloody. It costs the life of His Son. And grace never runs out. I was thinking of it this way. In terms of a weather forecast, the forecast for us is always grace. Enough to flood our lives. Grace that will never, ever run out. I love that verse that we read in chapter 6, verse number 8, I believe it was. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know what? For every one of us that trust in Jesus as our Savior, we could take Noah's name out of that verse and supplant it with our name. Dana found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Jerry found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Terry found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because we've chosen to walk by faith. We walk by by faith and the forecast is grace floods and floods of grace available to us from the very throne of God we're singing that song a while ago he's the beginning and the end it just came all over me it's grace at the beginning <laughs> it's grace at the end so that 
when you and I come to lie upon what will be our deathbed, the one thing that will comfort and will help us and strengthen us that moment is the same thing that helped us at the beginning. It won't be as a result of what we've been or what we've done, but it's because of grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you stand with me, please? I, I really, I really, really desperately want this message this morning to get out to a wicked and broken world. Because it's their only hope. Grace is their only hope. Unfortunately, my preaching can't get out, or maybe fortunately, depending on your point of view, my preaching can't get out to everybody that needs to hear this. But I'll tell you how it can happen. If God's forecast is of grace, just throw your head back and let those raindrops of grace start hitting your tongue and fill you and flood you with the overwhelming knowledge that God's grace is flooding your life, has reconciled you to Him, and it will get you through whatever you're having to go through while still in this life. Grace. It's so amazing. Through Jesus this morning, the continual cry of my heart throughout this sermon series, God, is that every person who hears of your grace during this long series would not just hear about it, but would experience it. That it would wipe away the hurt from the past. That it would give hope for the future. And that it would give us the ability to cope in a wicked, broken, evil world. Knowing that that same grace that we've experienced is available to even the worst that lives in the world. It's available to the worst of us. And it has the power to change us and to give us a new beginning. Yes, we deserve your judgment. But out of your commitment to us, to love us and never give up on us. You've given us grace. That is why you're so great. It's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise. We pour
now our responsibility to be dispensers of that same grace practical terms here's what that looks like nobody is beyond the scope of God's grace honestly I used to think that there were some people that even God couldn't love and then God put me in prison ministry. And I saw God change some of the hardest-hearted people who had done some of the most heinous, horrible things to their fellow man that you could ever imagine. And I saw God's grace give them a new start. And you know what happened? Their entire demeanor changed where they were hard and, 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 and cruel and, and, and just, okay, mean. All of a sudden, God's grace changed them firstly inwardly, but it began to work its way out. And they were barely recognizable as the same person that committed those awful things. It's our responsibility, since I can't preach this series to them, that grace has to be shown through us. No matter what side of the tracks they live on, no matter what their family history is, no matter what they've done or not done, they need grace. you appreciate it as much as I think you do you'll be more than happy to share that grace with them and see what God can do even with them because here's the reality you didn't look a whole lot different than they did before you received God's grace
your breath in our lungs, Lord. Let that breath flow out from us and touch the people that we come in contact with so that they too can experience your great grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.